Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Romans 12. The passage can be found on page 10 of the bulletin and will also be projected above. I'll be starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Wolf. I appreciate it. Um, I want to actually uh, do something a little different here. I want to draw your attention to an announcement in the bulletin before we get started here. It's the middle of page 19. Um, we're going to be having a couple of seminars coming up soon, Thursday, October 27th, and then another uh, seminar, uh, some Thursday in November, yet to be determined, uh, on God's good gift of sexuality. And uh, so that's obviously a massive topic uh, that could, we could do a whole lot more than just uh, two nights on. Uh, but a few things, though, that we want to do. One is um, we want to give a biblical framework for God's view of sexuality. Uh, that's one of the primary things that, that we'll begin with. Uh, but then we also want to get real practical as well. We want to be able to give some tools and, and equip ourselves uh, to be able to love and engage with our neighbors where we differ on, on these sorts of questions. Uh, we also want to give uh, some time to parents and uh, talk some about what it could look like to discuss these really important topics um, with our children as well. Um, and we'll draw from a, a lot of different resources, but the, the primary basis is going to be our denomination study committee report on sexuality. Um, it, it's somewhere in the range of like 40 pages long, so um, that might be more than you want to read, although if you want to, that's great. Uh, but there are these 12 affirmations, these 12 statements on the front, uh, at the front of it uh, that, that we would encourage you to read. And so what we're going to do this week is on Wednesday, you'll get an email with a link to that study committee report. And the other thing that's going to be in that email is that uh, there will be a link to a Google form where you can submit questions. Uh, we would love to get as many questions uh, from y'all as we can uh, to help us plan some of what we'll talk about. Obviously, it's unlikely that we could answer everything, uh, but we hope to, to have that frame some of our time and really see this as the beginning of uh, further conversation in years to come as well. So, just want to draw your, your attention to that. Uh, that was middle of page 19. So, okay, kids. Uh, here are the three things I want you to listen for today. Uh, one is three good sermons. Secondly, play actor. And then thirdly, the onion. So three good sermons, play actor, and the onion. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we ask that by your spirit you would attend to us now 
We pray that you would open our eyes to behold the glory and the beauty of your son, even in this particular passage. And we pray this all in his name, for his glory and for our good. Amen. Um, one of the uh, classes, we actually had to take this uh, a number of times in seminary, were uh, what were called preaching seminars. And, uh, and so the way that these seminars would work is that we would select some book of the Bible or some section of the book of, a, of the Bible. Every person in the class would be assigned a, a particular text. You'd prepare a sermon on that text, and then you would preach it in front of the class. And after you get done preaching, uh, all of your classmates would give you feedback on it. So you always wanted to like take it easy because you knew it was coming back at you too um, the next time you got up. But then the professor would, uh, would wrap things up at the end and provide some, some encouragement um, and critique. And um, so one, of the, uh, one time in a, a particular preaching seminar, a friend of mine preached what was a really good sermon, um, but like many seminary student sermons, it had way too much content in it. And uh, so John Stott has this quote where he says, the, the hardest thing for young preachers is not saying 95% of what they know about the passage. And, um, and so uh, in the feedback portion, uh, one of our friends says this. He says, that was a really great sermon. In fact, those were the three best sermons that I've heard on that passage in a long time. <laughs> and I mention that uh, because that's how I feel about this passage, uh, where there are so many sermons that could be preached from here there's so much that could be said, but we're gonna to have to limit it some, okay? Uh, and so what's happening in this section of Romans 12 is that Paul begins to get super practical. So for the first 11 chapters, he, he's done this deep dive into the gospel, this, this good news about what Jesus has accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so now what he does in this section is, is he starts talking about the difference that that gospel message makes in a community of people. And so uh, some people think that this particular section is just sort of like a peppering of a bunch of phrases. Like these are just kind of, just kind of standalone wisdom sentences that Paul's throwing out. But I, I think it, there's actually a theme that ties this whole section together. And it's the theme of love. And so part of what Paul shows us here is that when we experience the love of God in Jesus, we actually become a kind of people who have a new capacity to love others. And it, it, it's a new capacity to love one another within the community, which is part of what he says there pretty much in verses nine to 16. But then he also talks about this new capacity that you and I have to actually love our enemies. That's what he talks about in verses 17 to 21. So that's how we're gonna uh, frame our passage today. This is uh, the, the third week now in our fall series on Romans 12 to 16. Uh, and we're calling this Embodying the Gospel. And so the, the, the question that we're asking and answering of every passage is, how can we embody the gospel in our life together? And so here's how we'll answer it this week. We embody the gospel in our life together by embodying the love of Jesus towards those inside and outside the church. So two points. Here's the first. Uh, the shape of love towards those inside the church. Um, and so what you get here in, in, uh, in this section and the next is never a definition of love, but what you do have here are, are what I'm gonna call snapshots of love. They're these sort of snapshots that Paul shows us of what love looks like when it is brought to fruition, when it shows up in a community in relationships with one another. So here's, uh, here, th there are four snapshots that I'm gonna highlight in this uh, shape of love towards those inside the church. So snapshot number one, uh, love is genuine. It's genuine. So uh, 
this whole section makes a whole lot of sense for, for, for Paul to begin with love. And, and the reason that we can say that is that love is this most basic Christian posture for our life together and, and even for our disposition in the world. And so if you think back to, to uh, Jesus' answer to the question of what is the greatest commandment, his answer is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then what, what Paul does in, in chapter 13, in the next section that Andy will preach in a couple of weeks, is that he actually says that love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus says as well in John 13 that love is gonna be the way that the watching world is gonna know that you are my disciples. Love is gonna, be, is gonna show that. So here's what's interesting though. The, way, the place that Paul begins here in, in verse nine is by talking about love, in order for it to be real love, is that it must be genuine. And literally, uh, it, it says, let love be without hypocrisy. And so kids, that, that word for hypocrisy is actually the same word that's used of a play actor, of an actor in a play. And so you think about the way that an actor inhabits a role, he pretends to do something, right? He acts in a certain way, he, he takes on certain characteristics, but they're not real, they're not, they're not genuine. And so here's why this is so important. And what, what Paul knows is that there's gonna be a temptation for us to, to do something that looks like love, that appears to be love, that maybe has some outward appearance of it, but that actually isn't love at the end of the day. And there's a sense in which the, uh, the, the rest of this passage is gonna show what that genuine love looks like. And there are, of course, endless applications to this, but I'm gonna just suggest one, and it's this. I think one mistake that we can make when it comes to thinking about what real love is, is to, is to equate love with making someone feel better. Now, I wanna be careful because love is certainly not the opposite of that, right? Where you just make somebody feel worse all the time. But here's the thing. If real love is always seeking the good of the other person, then what that means is that there are gonna be times when real love is allowing somebody to feel uncomfortable. So let me give uh, one example of this, and maybe one of the better examples of it, and it's in the, the kind of love that a parent has for a child. So you know as a parent that loving your child does not mean always making him or her comfortable, right? Giving him whatever he wants, saying whatever you think is just going to make him feel better regardless of what it is that you're saying. So let's just say hypothetically uh, that, uh, that your child continues to forget her homework. And so she calls you from school and asks you to do that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, and maybe uh, you, you bring it up a couple of times. But uh, what happens though is that it continues to go on. And it's not just one or two times, it ends up pushing into the double digits in a big way, okay? So your daughter calls and asks you to bring it up to school again and you do it, okay? Now, would that make your child more comfortable? Yes, absolutely, right? But would that be more loving for your child? And that question's a lot harder to answer because at some point all of us would say it would be enabling her to continue to make this really bad decision that's ultimately really not good for her, right? And so the, the, I think that's, that's a picture of, of what real love might look like in a particular instance because real love doesn't enable someone to do something that's harmful to the person. And I think that's part of what Paul's talking about here where he tells us to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We do that 
in the way that we love each other, even if that means allowing a person to feel the consequences of his or her actions. So just one, one uh, possibility there of, of loving one another. It, it's, it's being willing to say hard things. It can mean allowing somebody to feel a great sense of discomfort. And that's not always easy, but it's what genuine love really looks like. So that's one snapshot. Here's the second snapshot. Paul says that real love looks like family. It looks like family. Verse 10, take a look back there. Paul uses words in here that, that are uh, they're family sort of words. And so even this word for, uh, for love in verse 10 is a different word from love that he uses in verse 9. And it's usually used in the context of the love for a parent for a child. So he says, love one another in that way. And he goes on to say, to do so with brotherly affection. And so what, what Paul's doing here is he's tapping into what is one of the main images of the church in the New Testament. It's that of a, of a family. And so he, here's what I want us to think some about. What could it mean for us as a church to embody this kind of family love? I think uh, uh, in some ways it would mean that, that the church would end up being a place where we share real burdens with each other. It would be a place where we share real celebrations and real joys with each other. It would be the kind of place where what Paul says later, we, we, would, be the, we would be a place where we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we weep with those who weep. It would also be the kind of place where we have a real unwavering commitment to each other. The kind of commitment that, that doesn't sort of check out of relationships when it gets hard or move away people, from people when it feels like maybe their suffering is something that's beyond what, what we can handle or we're comfortable with. Um, but, but it would also mean this. It would mean that we don't set the ideal uh, in our community as the nuclear family to which every person must aspire. So is marriage a good thing that is a gift from the Lord? Yes, it is. Are children a blessing from the Lord? Yeah, absolutely. But God doesn't call all people to marriage. God doesn't call all people to having children. And so remember, this is a good thing to remember, Jesus and Paul didn't have either of those things, right? And, and so what God does is he calls some to a life of marriage and he calls others to a life of being single. And here's what we've got to see. Both are equally great ways to flourish in our life with Jesus. And both are a part of the only true eternal family, which is the church. So there's a, uh, there's a pastor named Ed Shaw, who uh, is a pastor in, uh, in Britain, and he experiences same-sex attraction. And so he wrote this great book called Same-Sex Attraction in the Church. And most of it is about his own experience of what it's like to be a celibate gay Christian. And, uh, and he said that one of the hardest things that he's encountered in the church is the mentality that equates family with mom, dad, and 2.4 children. And so uh, and he says, though, on the flip side, that one of the greatest things, one of the greatest blessings he's experienced in the church has been the way his particular church has really sought to become a genuine family together. And so he talks about the way that, that, that single people and married people and those with children and those who don't have children are deeply involved in one another's lives. They're opening their homes to one another. They're, they're sharing holidays together. They're, they're celebrating birthdays together. And he says that there, there, there's nothing at all magical about this. He says it's actually just really simple. It's including people from across the spectrum demographically 
in your everyday life. And so here's what he says. And crucially, this new family benefits us all. There's give and take from all of us all the time. It strengthens single people, but it also strengthens marriages. It allows children to grow up in an environment where there are multiple adults parenting them. It's not perfect, there are constant ups and downs. All human relationships get messy at times, but they are a mess worth making. Because when it works, it is the most wonderful of experiences for all of us. When church feels like a family, I can cope with not ever having my own partner and children. When it hasn't worked is when I have struggled the most. Our love should look like a family. That's the second snapshot. Here's the third. Uh, Third snapshot, love looks like humble service. It looks like humble service. So what Paul says is that uh, this love is not just a, a general feeling that you might have towards somebody else. It's actually something that works itself out in, in, in practical, concrete ways that you can see. And he mentions two of them. One is this in verse 13. He says, you, we contribute to one another's needs. And so um, one of the things that, that marked the early church that uh, put on display how radically different this community was, was the way in which they shared resources. The way in which they, they took care of people in their midst who were hurting, who were poor, who didn't have what they needed and those needs uh, were met. And sometimes that happened through the, uh, the formal structures of, of the diaconate. So like in Acts 7, that's what's happening for the widows in, um, in that church. But here's the thing that, that I wanna press us a little bit on. It can also happen in a person-to-person sort of way. So it could be that you become aware of a woman in the church who has just lost her job and things are super tight. And so what you do is you ensure in ways that that are sensitive and private and in ways that they can be uh, to ensure that that she's gonna be able to pay rent this month, that there aren't particular needs that are going unmet because of the situation in which she finds herself. It could also though look something like seeing this couple who has just suffered a miscarriage and knowing that they are hurting so badly right now that the way in which you can meet a very real need is to take their other children for a night so that that mom and dad can be alone and cry and grieve together. It it shows itself in meeting very real needs. That's the point. Here's the second thing Paul mentions though in verse 13. He says that real love pursues hospitality. And, And so it's pretty interesting the way Paul puts this. He doesn't just say, be open to hospitality. Offer it if it comes along, right? He says to seek it out to pursue having people into your home and into your life, to be intentional about it. And it's interesting, in, in verse 16, uh, he, he goes on to say specifically, not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. And so it's almost like there's this echo here of, of Jesus' words about inviting all kinds of different people to your table. Not just those that maybe are easy for you to engage with or that aren't gonna make things a little bit awkward, but to invite all people to the table. That's what love looks like, humble service. So fourthly, and finally, the snapshot of love is this. Real love shows up in good times and bad. It shows up in good times and bad. So I think, as I've already mentioned earlier in the service, one of the most beautiful phrases in this passage is verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. One of the greatest gifts that you can give to somebody is to show up in their life when things are wonderful. 
And one of the greatest gifts that you can give to somebody is to show up in their lives when things are awful and to weep with them. And not to feel as though you need to say anything, not to feel as though you can, should or even could try to fix anything, but to be with them and to weep with them. Like one, one of the times that, um, we've felt this a lot in, in this church and in other churches, but one of the times we felt this most was when Jeanette's brother had been killed in a car accident in 2013. We were just about to move back to, uh, to Fort Worth uh, where I was gonna take a job at Fort Worth Prez and uh, Darwin Jordan, who was the senior pastor there and his wife Kay showed up in Kansas City for that funeral and it meant the world. Not because they, they were able to, to say anything or to fix anything in any way at all, but they were there to be with us and to weep with us. And, and here's the thing about this. When we do this, we actually help each other to do what Paul says in verse 12, which is to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Love shows up in good times and bad. So those are the, the four snapshots here of what love looks like uh, towards those inside the church. But Paul pivots in verse 17 and he pivots to a place that's actually pretty uncomfortable for most of us. Um, so secondly, what he does is he shows us the shape of love towards our enemies. So there's a, a pastor named Brian Habig who uh, will talk about doing a sermon series called Scripture That We Hate. And he says, this is one of them, right? Um, that I, I, there aren't a lot of things that would come less naturally to us than, than Paul's and Jesus's words to love our enemies. So there, there, was a, uh, there was an article a number of years ago in The Onion, which is this satirical online website. It's all satire, okay? And, uh, and so uh, the headline was this, 80% of waking hours spent plotting revenge. And, and so it cites this made-up study, of course, and says this, the study confirmed that on average, one spends 14 hours per day trying to figure out how to, quote, take sweet revenge on countless friends, family members, celebrities, public figures, and utter strangers. And as usual, uh, it's funny because it's true, right? That there's this sort of retaliatory impulse inside of us that comes naturally, that wants to repay evil with evil. But Paul, following Jesus, says that there is a different way and it is a better way. And so here we get two more snapshots of this kind of love. Here's the first snapshot. It looks like living peaceably with your enemies. So verse 15, repay no one evil for evil, and then skip to verse 18. He says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so the, the natural response, if somebody does you evil, is to hammer them to do everything that you can to take them down for whatever it was that, that they've done to you. What Paul says instead, though, is to pursue peace. And uh, Tim Keller has a really interesting application on this uh, very passage. He says that we're called not to avoid the one who has wronged us. And I, I, one of the reasons I think that application is really helpful and important is because one of the things that we do first when somebody has wronged us is to cut them off to dismiss them, to cancel them, to be done with them. And what Paul says here though, is that the way of love is one that seeks peace, that doesn't go looking for a fight, but instead actually tries to reconcile. 
Here's the thing, though. He gives a couple of very important qualifiers, and, and, and here's the first that I want to make for us. What Paul is not saying here, nor is he saying it in the, the next point that we're going to talk about, that, that you should ever give yourself to abuse. And I'm thinking here specifically of women or of children who might be in abusive relationships right now. The Bible never, ever calls you to give yourself to abuse. And if you find yourself in a situation right now that, that is a, or a, uh, an abusive relationship, please tell us. You can tell me, you can tell Andy, you can tell Susan, one of our elders or one of our women's shepherding team members. But I, you need to know that, that actually loving your abuser is getting out of that relationship. It's saying something about it. So that's one qualification. Here's the second. Paul gives a qualifier. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. In other words, there are times when peace is not possible. There are times where, where you do all that you possibly can, but the other person is not gonna have it for whatever reason. Reconciliation is not possible, and so there are limits to it. But what Paul is saying is that part of loving our enemies is living peaceably towards them so far as we're able. That's one snapshot. Here's the second. Loving our enemies looks like overcoming evil with good. So this is what Paul says in, in verse 21. He develops, though, he develops this in verses 19 and 20. So look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Kind of read that and go like, okay, that escalated quickly, right? That things got very serious here. And so a, a few things to notice here. What, one is this, just as a kind of a preliminary comment that we need to remember. Paul is here talking to individuals within the church. He's not speaking here to those in places of governmental authority. Uh, and in fact, in the next chapter, what he's gonna do is talk some about the role that, that, uh, that governmental authorities have in punishing wrongdoing. And so I, I mention that because we might be tempted to think like, oh, like even those in positions of government authority shouldn't punish criminals. And no, that, that's not what Paul's saying here. Um, what he's actually saying and what he will say in chapter 13 is that one of the ways that God administers justice in the world is through those authorities. Now, of course, that can be done uh, imperfectly. Governing authorities can, of course, be deeply unjust. We'll talk some about that next week. But the point here is that Paul is speaking to individuals. This is how we as individuals respond. And he says that we're to overcome evil with good. So how do we do that? Two ways. The first is by doing good to our enemies, by doing good to them. So he says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If, he th if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Why? And this is where things get a little weird, right? Into verse 20. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Okay, what does that mean? So on the surface, I think if you just read it straight up, it almost sounds like here's the way you can really stick it to your enemies, right? Like kill them with kindness and God's really gonna get after them if you do that, right? Um, the, the, the problem uh, with that though is that that's not really in keeping with the tone of the passage, right? That's not really overcoming evil with good. That, that, that's the point he's making. And he said in verse 14, to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. 
And so what, what most commentators believe uh, that, that this heaping burning, uh, uh, heaping burning coals is was actually a way to push your enemies towards repentance. And so in this case, the, the, the kindness and the love that you would show towards an enemy would be something that would be almost unbearable to him. It would force him to act almost as though you are heaping burning coals and it forces him to do something about it. It forces a response. And so the, the hoped for outcome of that is repentance by that evildoer. So that, that, that's some of what, what, what's going on in this passage. But, but here's the question. Even if that's how we understand this passage, um, the, the real question is how in the world is something like this possible? How in the world is it possible to, to, repay, to not repay evil for evil or to, to not seek vengeance? And I think it, it's one thing if we're saying like, yeah, you shouldn't retaliate when somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? Or you shouldn't retaliate when somebody leaves an ugly comment on your Facebook page or something like that. But, but it's something different when real wrong is done to you. When, when somebody does what could rightly be called evil to you. And here's what we've got to see. The only way that it is possible to love that person and to not retaliate is if God really is a God of justice. If he, unless he really is one who in the end will do away with all evil. And that's exactly who the God of the Bible is. And it's what Paul says in verse 19. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so Paul's saying here, you've got to remember that God is the true and ultimate judge. And when you do that, two things happen. One is that you're reminded that there will come a day when all wrongs will be made right. You have got to know that while we can overlook injustice and are called to overlook injustice, God is a God of justice. And ultimately, he won't overlook that injustice. As Psalm 10 says, he does see, he sees. And this can feel super uncomfortable, right? But here's the thing, think about the alternative. Think about a God who doesn't ultimately carry out judgment. A God who doesn't care about injustice and wrong in the world. There's a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volv, and he wrote this book called Exclusion and Embrace, and he wrote it as one uh, who was actually giving theological lectures in the midst of war and this attempted ethnic uh, genocide as Yugoslavia was breaking up in the Yugoslav Wars. And so massive, awful uh, violence was taking place at the time. And he says this, he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end of violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. See, but the God of the Bible is one who will make a final end of all violence and injustice. We've got to be reminded that that's true. So here's the other thing that that happens when we remember that God's the true judge. We're We're reminded of the mercy that we have been shown by that same true judge. Because here's the problem. All of us are guilty. All of us have perpetuated evil in this world and have done evil towards one another. And God 
in his mercy has judged that evil that you and I have done. But the time at which he judged it was 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross where he poured out that very wrath mentioned in this passage on his son. And he did so in order to show you mercy. He did so in order to show you love. And this God, as he hung on the cross, was one who didn't bless or didn't curse, but bless. One who didn't repay evil for evil, one who didn't avenge himself, one who literally died for his enemies. And it's only when we know the love of that God that we have any hope of becoming the kind of people who could extend this love to one another and even extend this kind of love to our enemies. But it is possible. It's a reality that can be brought about in us by the work of Jesus in us. And so the question is, have you received him? Have you embraced that kind of love, the kind of love that died for you while you were his enemy? He's the one who offers himself to you. Will you receive him? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of staggering love and that it is even your love that fuels your justice such that there will come a day when you wash this world clean of all of sin, of all evil, of all of the the impact and effects of our sin in this world. Lord, we thank you that that is our hope. Uh, We thank you that you have shown us tremendous mercy in and through your son that you have, as the true judge, have looked upon him and pardoned us. We thank you for him and pray all this in his name. Amen.